This week, we're bringing you the double episode for season three. We're on the road to Boone, North Carolina, a city in the southern Appalachian Mountains with its fair share of mythology and nostalgia, from its namesake Daniel Boone to its contemporary tourist economy. Originally, we went in hopes of exploring Boone with an eye towards what's real about the town. But what we found was more complicated. A part of Appalachia largely spared from the ravages of mining and mountaintop removal, but now mired in controversies over gentrification, which is something we don't often associate with rural spaces. The rate of second home and absentee land ownership in Watauga County is forcing out long-term residents and having serious consequences for the area. And according to scholars John Florin and Richard Pillsbury, this part-time residence has even led to politicians from South Florida buying advertisement space in Southern Appalachian markets. Strangely enough, this contemporary problem eerily echoes the Watauga area's colonial history, as settlers such as Daniel Boone trespassed into Cherokee territory, desiring more land, while speculators reaped profits. This journey ultimately led us to the area known as Meat Camp, an unincorporated community just outside of Boone, and one of the last places in the county not subject to wholesale gentrification. Along the way, we visit Watauga County's landmarks, the famous Mass General Store, and we try to pin down just what's real about Southern Appalachia, the tourist economy, and the future of a place with an apocryphal past. And I should offer that I recount my own shaky understanding of Watauga County history on our drive up to Boone. So all my historian friends are welcome to at me with corrections to my not drunk, but indeed driving history. And we should note that this episode does include some adult language that may not be suitable for everyone. And while we don't normally narrate our episodes, for this journey, we think some brief narration will help listeners follow us into the heart of Meat Camp and our own nostalgia for a past that never was and a future that may never be. I'm Gina Kaysen, and this is About South. briefly 
tell me and listeners what they know to be true about Daniel Boone. Who would like to start? Tell me everything you know about Daniel Boone. I don't know anything about Daniel Boone. Do you um, know that he was a person? I do know that he was a person. I remember reading about him in like an elementary school history textbook. And Lindsay seems to have the same memory of him being some guy who is similar to, but not the same as Davy Crockett with the coonskin cap. But officially I know nothing about him except that this town is named after him. So I guess he was from North Carolina. Okay. Kelly. Who Uh, is Daniel Boone? I guess I both know more and less about Daniel Boone uh, than Adwa. Because I did not know that he was a person. I mean, I knew he was a person. (laughs) But I didn't know that he existed in real life. Like, in my mind, he got caught up in the mythology of Johnny Appleseed, of Paul Bunyan. But Johnny Appleseed was also a real person, wasn't he? He was. No. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Johnny Appleseed is a real person. Daniel Boone, real person. Davy Crockett? Real person. Real person. Davy Jones? Isn't that the guy from the Bee Gees? I thought that he was, we're going to Davy Jones' locker. What are you talking about? <laughs> like if you die at sea. He's a pirate? Yeah. Wait, what? He's a pirate? I don't know. There's Who is Davy Jones? <laughs> I only know this name from Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh my god. Okay. So, um, I thought he might have had a big blue ox named Babe. <laughs> that That's was Paul, Paul Bunyan. Bunyan. Who is not a real person, right? No, he's not. I see why you're confused, though. I mean, they're all, like, white mountain men who, like, did a thing that I... They mostly killed Native people, let's be honest. I mean, mm-hmm. not let's not disparage Paul Bunyan. He's not real. But I think what they all... All these other men have in common is they were kind of horrible settler leaders who killed people. <laughs> so, it probably would have been better if they were fictional. But why did you think, okay, so the other day you were telling me a story about the Daniel Boone National Forest in Kentucky. Uh-huh. Because Boonesboro, Kentucky is a place that Daniel Boone, I think, actually created and founded. I don't think he really founded Boone, North Carolina. But did you think <laughs> that they had named a national forest after <laughs> a fictional character? Yeah. Why not? Seems exciting to me. I mean, like, there's also, like, uh, I think I had, like, a book of, like, mythological men (laughs) when I was a child. Like, I was telling you on the phone about the guy from Texas who is kind of like Wild Bill Hickok, who was a real person, I think. Yeah, but you didn't know his name, and I was like, you mean Yosemite Sam? (laughs) No, but it's a guy who's like that. Who had, who had, like, a rattlesnake for a belt. Do you know who I'm talking about? <laughs> like, there's, it's a fictional guy. So, I don't know. Da- like, Daniel Boone, in my mind, he might have planted apple trees over Pennsylvania. <laughs> he might have 
chopped down a forest or two. There, the path, he might have had a, a, a coonskin cap. That is definitely Davy Crockett. Right? So I guess in my mind, he was just the amalgamation of all of these characters. Yeah. But also maybe real people. Well, he was a real person. But don't you know the phrase, like, more room, Daniel Boone? More room, cried Daniel Boone? I've only heard that phrase from you. Pajua? I just heard it for the first time just now. Okay, so it's the mentality, right, that, like, white people came over from Europe and, like, no matter how much, like, fucking land they kept convincing Native people to, like, allow them to work and live on that they always needed more room. Like, Daniel Boone was constantly like, I need to be out of society. I need to, like, not live in the cramped European way of living. Like, I need more room. And so it was this, like, constant desire for more and more and more land. Because what Daniel Boone did do is take illegal settlements of English and German people that Britain, when it was still when the U.S. was still a British colony, that they basically, like, the Brit this, sound this sounds a bit like drunk history, <laughs> but I haven't been drinking. I just am loose on my facts with this a little bit. <laughs> so, um, basically, the British government is like, yo, we made a treaty with the Cherokee, and you cannot settle, like, past the Yakin Valley, which is like just east of the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina. And Daniel Boone was like, I'm going across the Blue Ridge, like out of the Yakin Valley. And they were like, dude. So then, so then all these other people, they get into a fight. The Alamance regulators in Alamance County, North Carolina, um, have one of the first skirmishes of the Revolutionary War, and then they have to leave. And one of the things they want is for the British government to let them settle in Cherokee territory, like in the Cherokee Nation. And the British government is like, we cannot do that because they also know they probably can't win a war with the Cherokee at this point. Britain is not strong enough on this continent to fight that war. But Daniel Boone keeps like leading all these settlements because he needs to be, then he like comes to North Carolina leaves people that have trailed along behind them in his wake and then he keeps going like in so then they're like dude you cannot go over the cumberland gap and he's like i'm gonna lead a bunch of white people over the cumberland gap and then he does that and then he's in kentucky and he's like they're like dude now you're in shawnee territory and he's like it's cool they like me if this was arrest development they'd be like they did not like him like <laughs> <laughs> so he just kept doing this and then what's super messed up about it is there was actually a land speculation company called the Watauga Association that was already, quote unquote, buying up deeds to Cherokee land that they didn't, in any way it was absurd that they had written these land speculation deeds to this territory. Mm -hmm. Because it's like if, it's like if I started speculating land in France, and I sold you a land speculation ticket, and you'd be like, well, Gina, it's kind of weird, because <laughs> we don't live in France, and that's another country. Yeah. But guess who one of the main off-the-books investors in the Watauga Association was? Daniel Boone. 
well, not necessarily, yes. Bigger than him. Someone who is definitely real. Oh, no. Thomas Jefferson. So then Thomas Jefferson is writing what will basically become, like, Indian removal policy early on. But he's also the one of the financers of this illegal land speculation company. So, of course, they want one of the things that people who really wanted the U.S. to be a thing, what they wanted is the British wouldn't let them go into the Cherokee Nation mm-hmm. and settle. And they were like, but the U.S. government will let us. And, of course, Thomas Jefferson was like, you know what I need to do is, like, get a new government because I got all this money tied up in land speculation, like, west of the Yadkin Valley. I felt like Thomas Jefferson had to be in this story somewhere. <sighs> yeah. That's everything I know about Daniel Boone. Also, but let me say that Boone, North Carolina is a lovely place. But also, maybe Daniel Boone hadn't been there? No, he like settled around there, but it wasn't like he founded it. It's not like he was like, this is Boone, North Carolina. I'm naming it. He didn't even want to be there because as soon as, he's like the hipster. Daniel Boone was like the original land hipster. Mm Because as soon as somebody else, other people started doing it, he was like, well, no, I'm going to go over here. I'm not doing that thing. I'm done with that settlement. Like, that town is so over. I'm off to Kentucky. Mm. Which wasn't Kentucky at the time. Mm-hmm. So he just, like, ultimate sort of, like, white dude entitlement. I'm just going to march across these United States. Doesn't matter who owns this land. It's mine now. Yes. Hence the phrase... More room, cried Daniel Boone. Yes, that very popular phrase. (laughs) (laughs) After our first night in Boone, our friends and host, Zach and Jess, suggested that if we were trying to find something real in the area, we might go to Plan B in Meat Camp, which we didn't understand at first. And, indeed, we realized we may need a plan B. But we were up for anything. So Zach came along for the next day's adventure, where we tried to figure out just what meat camp was, and someone who could tell us why it was important. First, we ran into Cody Miller, a lecturer in the Department of Sustainable Development at Appalachian State University. Here's his thoughts on meat camp. night Jess and Zach tried to tell us what meat camp was it went like this Kelly I I think Jess just ran out into the middle of the living room she's got and she says you've got to go to meat camp you've got to go to meat camp and you've got to buy a plan b t-shirt and none of those things made any sense to us (laughs) we didn't even understand that she was saying meat camp and I guess maybe for the listeners we should clarify that it's m-e-a-t camp I meat thought camp. she was saying mead, like yeah. a mead hall. That would be mm. also cool, but yeah. <laughs> so, Plan B reference, that's the little store um, right at the intersection of 194 and It is meat not camp related Road. to other things yeah. that people may associate with Plan B. Yeah, but uh, like... <laughs> okay, so just to be clear. So, historically, it wasn't really like a camp for meat, you know, but which, which kind of sounds cool, but um, it was, uh, you know, it was like a 
primitive kind of uh, field dressing ground for for hunters. Like deer skin trade stuff? Po- possibly. I'm not sure about that, but I know it was. I mean, it was a big hunting area, and it was a place to you know, like um, you know, process um, you know what you hunted. So yeah. meat. Yeah, meat. Yeah. It was a camp. Did Daniel Boone have anything to do with meat camp, or has it just acquired his name? Well. There's some talk that, I mean, he definitely had, like, a trace. I mean, like, he, he, like, used a trace around there. I haven't confirmed that myself, but that's the local legend, right? I think, um, yeah, he was, you know, he, like, he might have been in that, that area. So. <laughs> but it's probably, it's too much to say it was Daniel Boone's meat camp. Oh, yeah. It was just, Do yeah. people call it Boone's meat camp? No. I hear ah. people say, yeah. like, when people, like, Ask the question that you just asked, like, what the hell is meat camp? Yeah. I generally hear the responses, it was Daniel Boone's meat camp, and that's where all the I hadn't heard meat that, was so, processed. Yeah. Daniel Boone's meat camp, okay. But it's clearly not true. Yeah. It might be a meat camp, like a field dressing site or something. It's a place Daniel Boone walked past. Yeah. It is a place Therefore it's where meat was processed, with, with or without camping. Possibly, no, I would say probably camping. Okay. It, you know. And now there's a grocery store there. Yeah, and so my work was, was more on the um, historic grist mill. Oh, yeah, and okay. The the Weinbrugger mill. Okay. So, yeah, it was built there in Meat Camp in the 1870s. Is it uh, still there? It's still there. So if you're going to drive that way tonight, um, it's right off of Hopewell Church Road. Um, it's kind of like a kind of fallen-down-looking building, but um, and you would never notice driving by, but it was a pretty prominent um, hydropower grist mill in the area that was that was really well known for its buckwheat production so nice okay yeah. so it's not really known for its meat it's more for its grain yeah. <laughs> it's grain camp yeah I would I would say the the grist mill I mean you know people used to come from for miles and miles to you know get their uh, meal ground there so yeah After an amazing lunch at the Lucky Pickle and talking to Cody, we stop by the Mass General Store, a favorite tourist landmark in Watauga County. And on our drive to meet camp, we tried to figure out just what the Mass Store meant for our own nostalgia for Appalachia. So we just left the Jerky Outpost and we're on our way to meet camp. Daniel Boone's Meat Camp, but not Daniel Boone's Meat Camp. Okay. So do we want to talk about the general store that we just left? Mass General Store, as I understand it, was made by the Mast family. It wasn't initially a store. It was a post office, but also like a store from the mid-1800s. It's a very old building. And now it's a store with lots of things, including a candy annex. Okay. Can anyone fill in the gaps for me? I have I have the pamphlet. Oh, okay. How right was I? How far back do we want to go in history? I don't know. Legend says that a large tract of land in the Watauga River bottom was traded for a dog, a rifle, and a sheepskin in the late 1700s. 
Okay, so they're like saying, legend has it, we ripped off some Cherokee person. Land was plentiful. Because of course. you could just take it. But a working rifle and a well-trained dog and a hide to keep you warm were much desired back then. So that's the pamphlet. Okay. So the store was built in 1882-83. And it was an original, it was originally a general store with a post office. And later the Mast family bought in and became sole owners. I would like to hear everyone's impression of the store. <clears throat> it was adorable. Um, there's lots of stuff, like a very stuffed kind of place. Not necessarily things that you need for your home, but little trinkets that are mostly souvenir. Like everything said, Mass General Store on it. Except for the food products. There was a lot of jam and honey and syrup. Uh, there was a little pet corner with like dog food and cat food and like some house cleaning supplies. My favorite part was in the annex as I'm going through the candy and I hear this little kid pleading with their mom to go upstairs and the kid says, that's where the guns are. Oh, God. Because they really wanted to see the guns. They were literally in a giant room full of candy. How <laughs> old was the kid? No more than 13, 12. Oh, God. Kelly, what did you think of Mass General Store? I thought it... Maybe this is like... I'm watching the movie after it's become ubiquitous. So, like, I hear... For the first time, Darth Vader say, I am your father, and I'm like, oh, that seems passe at this point. But when I walked into the Mass General store, I was like, oh, this is like the Cracker Barrel store. Oh, <laughs> oh that's so interesting. But I think the Cracker Barrel store is based on, like, that idea. Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, this is, this is what this is. But I think it's because I had already heard like, I'd already seen, like, the approximation of that. You've seen the simulacrum. Right. Mm. And now you're like, oh, wait, is this the thing that it's supposed to be? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting. But it's become a kind of simulacrum of itself. Because it's all, like, <laughs> it's all stuff. <laughs> like, yeah, it's all its mass stuff. Right. Nobody's in the back there making their, like peanut brittle that you're buying from the woman who made it. Yeah, even the ice cream, I anticipated it being more of a like a local ice cream situation, but it was Bluebell. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. Good ice cream. Still delicious. Yeah. But not handmade in the sense that you would expect at a small local general store. But then I, but then... But then I go back to, like, is it really fair of me to expect that, like, some woman who lives in Boone, North Carolina, just spends all of her day making peanut brittle so that I can have handmade peanut brittle? Right? Like, like there's a reason that we have factories that make peanut brittle, because it kind of sucks. Like, it's a job that kind of sucks. I mean, making peanut brittle is not that bad. Well, or like... But I wouldn't want to do it know, all day. Right. So, like... Not enough to support the tourist economy of Mass General Store. Right. 
I mean, Zach, I guess I was really interested in, like, what your impression of, like, the mix of people there were. Like, do you think it was mostly tourists? Do you think, I mean, like, as somebody who lives here, have you, have you ever been there just for fun? Outside of, like, when you move to a place and you're like, oh, this is a cool place. I'm gonna go there once and then never go again. Like, do you go there often? I only go there when I have somebody visiting from out of town. Yeah. But I can't say, and, and I think everybody in there was a tourist, but with the exception of the post office, and people really do use the post office. They have a sign up that says, this is a working post office, please don't try to open the P.O. boxes. <laughs> Which says something about how the town it knows it's sucking you into this feeling, yeah. but then it has to remind you. But like, really, we are real people. Yeah. But I think even for locals, nobody needs to have a post office box there, but I think it's cool in Valley Cruces to have a post office box at the Mass General Store so that like people are sending you letters and it says Mass General Store. And I think it's the same mm. kind of nostalgia that would draw a local to have a P.O. box there in that really charming post office. It's the same nostalgia that draws the f tourists from Florida there to buy the fake peanut brittle. But this is, what's real peanut brittle? <laughs> it's not fake peanut brittle. It's factory made peanut brittle though. Yeah, but I mean it's, it's probably has all the ingredients of regular peanut yes. brittle. It is not fake. Yeah. I didn't even see any peanut brittle in the <laughs> store. I just thought of like the, the hokiest, most like country thing I could think of. It was peanut, peanut brittle. Peanut brittle is the hokiest, most country thing you can think of. Yeah. Y'all's attitudes around peanut brittle are very strange. I enjoy <laughs> Anyway. I make great peanut brittle. It is a staple in my repertoire. I mean, I was going to say you made like habanero jam, so I don't know if like you're the best metric for things that people make because you make stuff that people don't always make. Yeah, okay. So, so maybe I, like, I want to return to this nostalgia, because this goes to my thing, but go ahead. Well, I was just thinking, like, if I lived here, I'd be like, I, if I lived here, my thought process behind me wanting to have a P.O. box at the Mass General Store would be, I want to be part of the only real thing that exists in this, like, kind of constructed environment. It's almost a little bit, like... Uh, having a P.O. box and using like USPS anyway, you're like, if I don't support this thing, it'll be gone. Yeah. And you don't want it to go, so it's like, if I'm gonna have a P.O. box, I might as well let it be at the place that uh, needs to function as a post office still. I mean, I, I like that one room in the Mass General Store, because you can still go buy, you know, nuts and bolts. Literal, literal nuts and bolts, and there was a possum trap, and I, and I don't think that was like a hokey, you know, sort of gimmicky thing. It might be a thing one would actually need here. Yeah, I think it's like, I see possums on the road in Valley Cruces all the time, and I can imagine needing that trap. Um, I think what's interesting to me about the idea of a store like that and the nostalgia for it is it's a store, right? A store is originally a utilitarian thing, right? 
we need a good, we take our body to the store. We buy the thing, we take the thing home, right? But in the age of like big box and increasingly the age of Amazon, it's interesting to me that what people are nostalgic for is perhaps just the store itself as a concept. Like this is a store, it's just a store, right? Yeah. But like the idea of a store that sells a variety of things is something we're becoming nostalgic for, like, I think in its very form. Because for so many people, the interface now of a store is their computer. Even if you're a kid or an adult, someone our age who has never experienced the culture of the country store, I still think there's this kind of like nostalgia where you're looking back at a time that you believe to be I don't know, more wholesome? It's an experience that is it's not the box store and it's not shopping on Amazon and we have this fantasy about it somehow being better than our current situation. But they order all of those goods online. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that's the problem with the peanut brittle. I can get the peanut brittle anywhere else, why am I coming here to get it? I'm sure you could order it online from the Mast website, and yeah. But I think the experience of going to the store... Or you could order it from the peanut brittle factory. Yeah. Then why wouldn't I just find a little old lady who makes peanut brittle not in Boone? Well, I think that would be a good experience too, but I think it's, it's about the experience, not the product. And people are really after the experience, even though I think it is completely contrived. Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't like being in that place, actually. I mean, one of the things that, that I keep thinking about when, as you're, as you're talking about this experience of the store, is like, I feel like, I feel like the thing that is being sold is really... I think that, like, in people's imaginations, the Mast General Store, as it first existed, was like the community's point of contact with the outside world. And I think that may, that, that has to be something, like, that nostalgia is maybe more powerful. But do you think now the nostalgia works the other way? That, like, if it was originally a portal of the community to the outside world, now what we're trying to do is we've become the outside world and we're trying to go back and through the portal of this time where we imagine some type of, like, nostalgia-tinted times that, I mean, let's be honest, like... We're, we're not that great. Wait, this is meat camp? Mm-hmm. Where's plan B? Right there. Oh, plan B. This is the bustling intersection of no, I, I think that. Camp I think road. that is exactly... Right. Like, we're trying to get back. I say we loosely. I don't know who the we is. Like, 
But people go there because they don't want to be the outside world anymore. They have this nostalgia for being in this like closed off little space. And there's a lot of troubling politics to that because mm -hmm. it's about like racial and economic exclusion, mm -hmm. right? Well, yeah. that was that was my thinking with the nostalgia being this sort of backward glancing utopia because I mean how great really was the mass general store in the 1920s was it great or was it just great compared to what we have now but I'm just wondering like even if it, if it was great like I mean what are the chances that for instance it was not segregated exactly yep and yet we look back on that time as being so wholesome and this kind of like like integrated community not integrated in the in the racial sense but I mean the opposite of integrated in the racial sense but but we have this uh, I think people have this notion that it was it was an authentic place it was real um, and that there was this sense of community where everybody's bound up with one another and you would meet on the porch and you'd hear you know so-and-so's uncle playing banjo or whatever like they had they were sort of peddling all those narratives while you were there but really like how great was it you know it was mostly a poor farming community right how many people at some point were in debt to mass general store yeah. yeah that they had to buy things on credit because the crops didn't come in or because of whatever and like going there was incredibly stressful because they needed things and they didn't have enough money or if you were a person of color living in the community, who knows if you could even go in Mass General Store. We always like to imagine that we are going to be like the lucky ones in history. And that's what it's selling, right? Is that it's not only that like, it is that utopian view of like, yeah, I can like walk back in time, but mm -hmm. I'm like, I can always afford the five cent candy for my children and I never have to like buy things on credit you know, despite the fact that, you know, people are used to still using credit cards and perhaps racking up debt at the National Yeah, people, store. I bought candy on credit just I now. I also bought candy on credit. <laughs> <laughs> so. Loaded up on candy and reflection, we finally got to plan B in meat camp, a small store on the corner that is exactly the opposite of the mast experience. Cashier and Watauga local Samantha Bradshaw talked to us about what she knew about meat camp. And we learned that Samantha and her family had just received word that they were to be the recipients of the Big Kahuna Habitat for Humanity project, which would help them build an eco-friendly home in the county. Tell us again what the sort of history of Plan B is. Um, my boss's name is Melinda, and she and her, at the time, boyfriend wanted to start a restaurant, like a little restaurant, sell fresh sandwiches, hot presses, you know, and I guess the building just wasn't up to the code that she needed it to be, and instead of putting more money into getting it up to code, she just decided on a Plan B which was a little convenience store, corner market, country store kind of thing. And we've been here for 11 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Can you also tell us again what, um, what you've heard about 
uh, why Meat Camp has its name? <laughs> well, from what I have heard, it was where Daniel Boone would bring um, his meat that he killed and he could trade it. It was like a meat trading camp. So, as far as I know, that's really as how Meat Camp got its name. It was just like trading meat back and forth yeah, and stuff. Maybe Selling processing. your meat, processing it. Absolutely. Nice. Yeah. Okay. I think that's it. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you, Thank so, you much. so much. Yeah. <laughs> You're yeah, welcome. Yeah, last night we were like, oh, it's like if you forget something in town. That's exactly what I thought, too, before I started working here. Because I, I grew up in Todd, and then my mom divorced her husband at the time, and we moved into Boone. And I didn't really think about ever coming back to Todd. You know, I was, I was going to leave Boone completely. But plans changed for me. I got pregnant, and I was like, well, I'm just kind of stuck here for the time being. And I moved to Ash County for about four years, and then when I came back to Boone, it was either Deep Gap or Tom, because I'm all about land. You know, like, who has the prettiest land? Where do I want to buy land? And to me, Todd really just is, out of all of Watauga County, the prettiest land, in my opinion. And so we are getting ready to purchase our first house. Yay. I'm so excited over on Big Hill, right where the school is. Nice. And we should be in it hopefully after Christmas. I'm so excited. Oh, it's so exciting. And, Yay. And I love it out here. It's absolutely gorgeous. Eventually, our quest for the truth of meat camp led us to the front yard of Professors Jesse Blackburn and Billy Schumann, who lived in meat camp for quite some time. Billy happens to be the director of the Center for Appalachian Studies at Appalachian State University, so we figured if anyone could help us figure out what it all meant, tourism, housing, and nostalgia, and meat camp itself, it might be him. So, there's a lot of apocrypha around meat camp. Yeah. Can you tell us as best as you understand it, what meat camp was and was it actually attached to Daniel Byrne in any way? Yes, it was. It was. Definitely. Okay, yeah, so what happened address, here? I can send you some literature that our center has done in the past before I was there, but I, I feel like I almost like panicked and called my old mentor and said, Pat, these people want to know about me camp. <laughs> I can tell you like the seven sentences that I know. That is perfect. And I don't know if that's good for a podcast, but yes, this is definitely a hunting camp for Daniel Boone as he began moving westward and exploring, colonizing, whatever, whatever you might call it yeah and um, it was because this was a very good place for hunting the game was ample and because we're in a fairly narrow little ribbon of a mountain pass not really even a valley I guess that helped draw game into a fairly confined space because I'm an anthropologist right so the basic idea is if you think about you know how did people survive you got to have water you got to have shelter food clothing so there's a narrow mountain pass, there's water at the bottom of it, so all the game is going to kind of come to that point. Because it, So it was meat camp because the 
animals were here who became the meat. That's right. Now, there was plenty of game all over this place, but I guess this was particularly ripe uh, for hunting. Yeah. Got it. Was now, there... was there a processing plant? I mean, not plant, but like a processing, someone who would process your meat if you didn't want to break down your own catch. Back then, I'm sure there was some of that, but a lot of people, I mean, if you were going to do the sort of wilderness thing, you had to be able to go from A to Z with that. So they would have been skilled in putting up meat, smoking it for the winter, uh, however they were going to process it. But of course, yeah, there were certainly uh, people who were skilled at that, and not too far from us now is the old mill that ran, you know, from the 19th century. We heard about the mill from Cody Miller. Yeah, we met yeah. Cody yeah. earlier. Okay. Yeah. So we're not far from the mill. So there's this has been an area of uh, settlement, you could say, um, since native peoples were driven yeah. out, right. essentially. Um, it also uh, later gained a reputation as a place of danger, violence. Uh, there was a murder that happened out here, and I can't give you a date, but it sort of set sort of a reputation for this area as the rough side of the county. Oh, okay. And so this whole area meat camp and as you go over Elk Knob, which you can see Elk Knob right there. Yeah. That's Elk Knob, which is just short of 6,000 feet. Um, you'd follow this road and you'd go up and over to the knob there. And on the other side is a settlement or a hamlet called Sutherland. And so this was kind of the rough side of the county okay uh in sort of the popular imagination and still is uh in fact even when i was hired on here and i had lived in boone years before so i kind of knew all this but when i was hired on here and told people i was moving to meat camp they were like oh that's the dangerous oh interesting that's, okay but that's kind of changed okay um not so much that the public perception is different and it, it probably has changed somewhat um, but, you know, with some of the things you see uh, changing throughout the South, right, that you could relate to poverty, globalization, sources, things like that. Um, so Meat Camp has been known as the rough spot, but in contrast to that, because there's a large university here and a couple other reasonably sized employers, there's been a lot of gentrification as people have moved in and essentially this is one of the last areas of the county that hasn't experienced that wholesale gentrification whereby as you build a nicer home or retirement community, second homes and things like that and tax values go up, that also affects the value of farmland and effectively drives traditional farming families out of the business which leads them to sell their land which creates more second homes developments and sort of accelerates that whole process okay wow that's really so meat camp is one of the last places in the county that's not experiencing that hasn't experienced that completely and totally because we've heard a lot about that well you've probably seen it yeah and we've right? seen it yeah have you been to blowing rock i have before i actually grew up in mebbin yeah yeah um so but um i know that blowing rock is that way and then parts of boone but then really all over Fosco. I mean, I could name a lot of towns no one on your podcast will have ever heard of, but there's been a widespread amount of gentrification occurring um, in the county, and so this is one of the places that's still somewhat more affordable. 
but really even looking at land prices in the county as a whole, they're absurd. Wow. Okay. Relative to the ability of working families to afford to stay. And so you have that coupled with sort of an industry that's based around the education system and as I said, some tertiary industries, but not a lot. There's a hospital, there's some, some light manufacturing. Um, you have a situation too where, and this is true of a lot of Appalachian communities, that educating your kids means driving them away, right? And so there's some interesting research that's been done. I can give you some sites that just looks at uh, that very, that sort of, idea of brain drain. I've seen some research mm -hmm. that sort of pushes back against that mm -hmm. in the last couple of years, so I don't know how wholesale that's really occurring now, but um, you know, it, you typically, unless you can educate yourself and then land at the university or in the medical field, right, you're not going to be able to stay, and so it's, ch it's creating all kinds of changes. So even in this holler that we're in, Myself and the neighbor over here are the only people who are not multi-generational family members or in the same kin group within this holler here. Okay. And so we bought a house from somebody from that kin group who moved out, uh, and they are worried about, you know, losing that. And as you can see, look around, these are nice houses. So yeah. it, it really dispels the mythos of sort of the poor Appalachian holler. Right. In many, if not every respect that you can think of. But nonetheless, even for those families who are doing okay, it doesn't, it's not a foregone conclusion they can afford to stay because the cost of real estate here is, is unbelievable. Primary home versus secondary home income level is a very different playing field. That's right. right. That's right. And so um, I've been loosely connected to um, a study that's being run out of the University of Kentucky to look at the land ownership patterns in Appalachia and it follows up on a study actually done by the center here at Appalachian State in the late 70s and early 80s in conjunction with the Highlander Folk and Education Center, or Research and Education Center. Um, and the conclusion of that study, which was grassroots run, very interesting model, was that you have overwhelming pockets and, and majorities in most places of um, absentee landowners. So in other oh, yeah. words, you have people who don't live here year-round. So if you're that second homeowner, your tax base moves out. So it actually cripples services as they're demanded. And so we've been revisiting that study. And again, I'm sort of supporting, not leading in that. Uh, and really, I have to give credit to a graduate student of mine who's really taken the lead on that. But um, what we saw is that, you know, absentee land ownership in Watauga County is over 60%. Wow. Right? That's and huge. Now, that that is not just second homeowners, but also uh, the federal government. Anytime you have a national park, you have a tax base vacuum right. in place. Um, and in Ash County, which has become sort of the alternative, because, you know, realistically, even... Uh, and Zach might be able to attest to this, too. You know, young professors, you know, who, which get good-paying jobs... Um, and aren't paid enough, still can't afford the housing market here. And so they've started over the last 20 years moving into Ash County, which is like, there, actually there's like 15 ways to get there from Boone because it's like a wormhole <laughs> yeah. county. But anyway, one of the wormholes will take you over Ridge Mountain and you'll come back into Ash on the other side, which abuts the Tennessee line. 
So you've had this whole flow of people moving there because that's been affordable, and now we're seeing the same effect. And this recent research uh, that my graduate student led showed that we have an incredibly high rate of absentee land ownership there too. So you're seeing all of these issues sort of collide. Wow. Yeah, that's just really informative. And I guess I didn't... I mean, one of the things when we do... We have an episode we're doing with Zach that's sort of about environmentalism. Cool. And But then when we came here, we sort of were like, okay... I was like, I know this is a town with a lot of apocrypha, right? Like, Boone has this... It's a whole mythology here that is... That it There's, needs for a certain kind of tourist draw. Yeah. But I haven't really... What I've kind of been surprised about, I don't know about y'all, is like how much of the story about here right now is about gentrification, which I think in Atlanta we hear a lot about, but you maybe don't think about it as a rural, as phenomenon. A rural phenomenon, but it's completely happening here. Yeah. Well, I'd say there's mythologies, plural. Yeah. Right. Oh, right. That, that are working their way into Boone. And one of the interesting things about Watauga County to me is that it does, it is an amalgamation of different sort of worldviews. Mm-hmm. And so the, what makes that interesting, that you see anywhere, of course, is that they're often drawing from that same wellspring of history, tradition, culture, authenticity, um, heritage, and that can be anything from people n- very near the top of the knob that are flying Confederate flags, mm-hmm. which makes it very hard to go and visit Elk Knob State Park just down the road, to people who are moving in just the opposite direction involved in a very broad idea of civic society and, and social engagement right. and social justice. And we have a, a good but always could be improved uh, social justice community here too and we all and, and of course that's just two points on a bigger spectrum and we're all sort of saying hey Doc Watson was the man right you're right yep yeah um, we all draw inspiration from the idea that you know we're we're in Elk Knob from the base of Elk Knob and so it's very complicated that same well is watering a lot of different that's right because we're all choosing to right right, in different ways but it speaks to sort of and that's the other thing i think is interesting here about this county then it sort of speaks to not to be political about it per se but there's a lot of different political voices here whereby although we are deep rural um we also have a balance uh in terms of how those sort of investments in community and culture and authenticity get sort of played out in terms of the realm of political participation. And so there's lots of conservatives here, but they have to play nice with us because there's lots of progressives too. And it's not that, and that even came out a little bit wrong because I don't mean that negatively towards them per se, right? And I guess I've labeled myself as a progressive, uh, but there is actually this overlap where we all do kind of get along and find a space of mutual respect, right? Right. Um, and that's not, I don't take that for granted. Yeah. So like, um, there are 420 United States counties in the Appalachian region as defined by the federal government. Mm-hmm. And, um, 14 of them went Democrat in the 2016 election. And we're one of them. 420, 14 went Democrat and Watauga County is one of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Okay. So that kind of gives you... Yeah. But, you know, if you kind of add up the numbers, too, you're talking about, you know, many millions of people who did vote for the Democratic candidate. Right. Uh, which is not necessarily an endorsement of that candidate, but just a reflection that those politics are much more complex than... Um, they're often portrayed in the media. Right. It's not all hillbilly elegy. Oh, gosh, no. That's, <laughs> <laughs> you just opened that. Yeah, yeah sorry. I didn't mean to open that <laughs> can of worms. That's a big deal. That's yeah. actually, that's like, we should sit on the porch for a while. Yeah, 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 no. I, that's, it, that is too much to, like, show up in your front yard. You've never met us before. <laughs> Let us pet your sheep. Well, also, what are your feelings on hillbilly elegy? Just a quick soundbite on right. that. <laughs> um, everyone is, in, is entitled to talk about their truth and their experience, but it's never a good idea to extrapolate the whole of a region of 205,000 square miles and 25 million people out of that. Amen. That's a good sound. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> That's our show this week. We'd like to thank Zach Vernon, Jess Martell, Cody Miller, Samantha Bradshaw, Wayne Pennington, Jesse Blackburn, and Billy Schumann. We'd also like to encourage you to give to any number of charities and organizations gathering resources for those affected by Hurricane Florence. You can find suggested places on our website. Also, if you sign up for our Patreon level of $10 a month, you'll be set to receive our special off-season bonus episodes on Southdown Baby Doll Sheep and the Boone outdoor drama Horn in the West. We have got a great off-season lined up for patrons. You can find more details on our website and our social media accounts. And you'll also receive that fancy About South magnet that I just know you've had your eye on. About South is brought to you from the historic West End of Atlanta, Georgia. Our music is by Brian Horton. You can find his music at brianhorton.com. You can find us at aboutsouthpodcast.com. You can also interact with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Next week, we're talking to Brian Cloudus from the Serenby Playhouse about all of his exciting new work, both in Serenby and all over the country. Until then, take care. outpost is very it's so quaint it's a beautiful yellow and gray and red and brown and it's just really picturesque to be a jerky outpost with like a perfectly manicured lawn and everything you really must expect less of jerky people i mean it's nicer than the mass store that we just came out of that's like the um the thing to do in boone but the mass are original the mass is real this is like a it looks like a hollywood set <laughs> That's what you like about it, isn't it? <laughs>